0: All right. Well, you guys are all quiet, so it seems like you're here and you want to start Sunday school class. So um, let's pray and we'll jump into our discussion, our Q&A for Ecclesiology, the study of the church. Lord, thank you for uh, just the the content we've been able to cover over the last several weeks in this class. I thank you for Stephen's work and Carrie's work in preparing these lessons for us. I just ask that as we discuss these matters today, uh, that you would give us increased understanding of your word and your redemptive purpose in gathering a people uh, for your name, a people who are redeemed by the blood of your Son, a people who are joined together and united in Christ, who will forever worship you. So we praise you for your goodness, ask for your blessing on our class this morning and on our worship to come. Amen. All right, so ecclesiology is the study of the church. Um, If you guys wouldn't mind just giving us maybe like the the 12-second um, reminder of what it is that you covered. And we'll kind of rehash our, our last couple lessons.
1: So I opened up with the introduction to this section, and I talked through basically kind of who is it that's involved in the church. We talked through some terminology in regards to just the topic um, through systematic. that categorize kind of what we're talking about when we use the word church. So we talked about the universal and the local church, we talked about the invisible and the visible church and kind of the contrast of those comparisons a little bit. We looked through the definition also um, just of ecclesiology um, in not ecclesiology but ecclesia um, in the New Testament, how the authors use that word and it can have a range of meaning de- depending on the context um, and we talked about what groups are involved in that. Is the church the same as Israel? Um, what is meant by true Israel and how does that compare? So we kind of talked through a lot of that and then talked about the local church specifically. What is the purpose of the church? That it's not man-centered, uh, but it's actually meant to glorify God. That's the purpose of the church. And if we get that wrong, we're really um, out of bounds of what the New Testament prescribes as what the goal is of the church to be. So that was kind of the real summary for me.
2: And so then in the, the lesson that we covered last Sunday, um, looked into the doctrines around um, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so in baptism, um, we discussed the uh, biblical mode of baptism, how it is done, um, the recipients of baptism, who it is for, the um, meaning of baptism, what does it mean, and then uh, fourthly, we looked at the necessity of baptism, why, why is it done. And uh, from there, we went and discussed uh, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and looked at four of the of the main um, different exegetical views on what that means and uh and then kind of outlined our own position on the lord's supper as being a memorial celebration um, where the church is focusing on and celebrating the presence of christ
0: with his bride and um yeah so that was that sunday and two weeks ago, I talked about the authority structure within the church. So if Stephen was defining the church and Carrie was you know, saying what the church is, you were defining what the church does in, in those two specific ordinances for worship um, I was describing how the church functions in terms of its authority structure. So Christ is the head of the church, meaning that he uh, is the authority over the church, but he's also its source of life. That's what it means when Scripture teaches Christ is the head of the church. And it belongs to him. Um, scripture also describes him as the cornerstone, the foundation upon which the church is built. So Christ is, is the ultimate authority in and over the church, and he delegates that authority to elders or pastors. Uh, we see those as synonymous here, um, but the congregation is also to participate. We don't view <clears throat> that the congregation's role is to be purely passive. Um, according to the New Testament, we see the involvement of the congregation <clears throat> in doing a number of things in the church. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and then we talked briefly about deacons as well. Um, there'd be two offices in the in the New Testament church. You have the office of elder or pastor or overseer. There's three different words used there that all describe kind of the function of the first office. And then the second office would be deacons who primarily serve um, the church. That is their role. While everyone serves um, in some sense, um, deacons are, are men who meet a specific, a set of qualifications, and they're entrusted by the body, selected by the body, to serve in a few key specific areas that affect the whole body. So that's what deacons do. Um, and we looked at a few different models for church government. There is the, uh, the elder rule model in which you have a plurality of elders who have all the authority in the church, and the congregation is more passive in that model. You have um, the Presbyterian model in which the church is governed by an external group of elders um, in in a session there. And then there's the Episcopal uh, model, which Methodists, Catholics, um, Anglicans, Episcopalians would follow, where you have um, authority in the church is eventually traced up to a a singular individual, um, a bishop um, or a pope even, be an archbishop. Uh, so those are a few different models. And then there's the model that we would follow, which is more of a congregational model, although it's not purely congregationalism. Um, but we would see elder-led... Uh, with a congregation actively participating as well. So kind of a hybrid of sorts between the elder rule and the strictly congregational model. So we wouldn't see that the church is purely democratic, that every decision is made by the consensus of votes from the body. We would see that elders are to lead. They do have authority and responsibility, but the body participates in various ways. So that's a a brief kind of um, recap summary of what we've been teaching on the doctrine of the church. So now's the time when we typically open that up for questions And I know that um, it's easy for this to turn into a discussion format and uh, we all enjoy offering comments and insights, but if you do have questions, we want to keep it focused on questions. If you have a question, it's likely someone else does as well, and we'll try to repeat your question for the sake of those who are watching later, and if you don't have some questions, I have some questions for these guys that I'm happy to throw out. So raise your hand if you've got any questions about what's been taught on the doctrine of the church, or maybe things we didn't get to um, re- regarding the church, and we'll try to get to those questions this morning. Brady. So the question is, um, if one were to uh, conclude that the church has replaced Israel, or to use more positive terminology, to use their favorite ways to describe it, if the church is the fulfillment of Israel, um, which at the end of the day I think re- boils down to kind of the same, same thing, but if the church is the fulfillment of Israel, if the church is true Israel or spiritual Israel, um, and that the ethnic people of Israel are not what's being referred to by the promises and by and in, and in God's plan. What, what are the consequences of that? How does that affect our theology? How does that affect our theology of God or even our practice as a church? Do you want to s- start on that?
1: Um, so that was in our first lesson, and we kind of talked about that as an important um, hermeneutical decision, which just means we need to understand how to interpret the Bible and hermeneutics is really even foundational to our theology. You know, a lot of times we we get a system of theology, and that kind of informs the way we read the Bible, but it's supposed to go the other way. We need to understand how do we rightly interpret Scripture, and then we let Scripture form our theology, right? And so this is an important subject that a lot of times we kind of interpret backwards, um, so it's important to understand how, how we interpret Scripture, but... You asked more specifically about the consequences, um, so I was kind of laying the groundwork of how this happens frequently as an, as an incidental conclusion. We kind of go about it backwards, but um, if you look at the other side of it, it's like, okay, if we did make this flip and we are at this place, what are some of the consequences? I think specifically one is, is directly the character of God. So what we see is if God is able to make a commitment with a specific people and then swap that people out, to me, that's, that's impacting my view of God. That's saying God is a God who can um, change the audience with which he makes commitments and promises to fulfill um, and can forsake the first group and replace it with somebody else. Um, to me, that, that impacts his faithfulness um, and would have a, a big impact on my view of who God is, that he can say one thing and then fulfill it with somebody else, rather than the person he was actually speaking with at the time. So I think that does impact the character of God, uh, but it does impact um, other groups of um, systematic theology. So it highly impacts your eschatology, which we're going to talk about next, the end times. How do you interpret what God says he's going to do? Um, If God says he's going to do something in the future, is he fulfilling promises that he made to Israel, or is he fulfilling promises he made to the church? Um, If he's Swapping those out, um, or if he's fulfilling it with the church, as they would say, then Israel has no real play. They're they're off the mat. There's nothing to be concluded in the future for them. And what you do is you end up conflating a lot of promises. So it can go all the way back to Genesis um, when he made promises to Abraham about the land, the seed, and the blessing that the blessing would be to all the nations. And so he's making. Covenant promises with a people saying that these are things that I'm going to fulfill. And if he hasn't fulfilled the promise specifically of land, um, of saying that this is the entirety of the land that I'm going to fulfill to your descendants, your descendants specifically talking to Abraham, and that hasn't happened yet, then God is having to fulfill that promise to a different people separate from Abraham's descendants Um, and I think that's that's a big deal um, in regards to just even eternal security like how do we know that God is going to promise to fulfill what he says he will fulfill we know that he always keeps his promises if God is not keeping a promise that's a huge hindrance to our faith um, and to our walk and knowing that salvation has been accomplished and will bring to completion uh, like he promises in Philippians.
0: And to be fair people who do have that view would adamantly argue for the faithfulness of God and and, and affirm that he keeps his promises. We just think that this interpretation better upholds the faithfulness of God, Um, and there's less kind of workarounds you have to do to show that God is keeping his his promises. Um, I I would add this clarification to the view that we're promoting is not that the church is plan B or a different plan. We see the church as the continuation of God's saving purposes through Israel. You mentioned the Abrahamic covenant, that God would make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, not just for their own sake, but so that through them, all the nations would be blessed. So God's intention from the beginning has been to bring salvation and blessing to the nations. And we see that even in Galatians um, in Galatians chapter 3. Um, it says that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So there's always been this, this sort of kernel of truth, this blessing bound up in the Abrahamic promises, which then leads into the, the nation Israel. Um, that was always intended to be expanded. So the way I like to describe it is that God's promises are never canceled and, and they're never revoked but they may be expanded upon. So God may do more than what he said when he made certain promises to Old Testament Israel, but he never does less or different. But he can always do more. So we see this expansion of God's saving purposes, this expansion of even the application of his promises, that there's this mystery that all of these things promised to Israel in the New Testament, we find out we get to participate in so much of that. Um, But I don't think that it's necessary for us to redefine Israel or change the referent of what it is that that word Israel points to in order to somehow make it all fit. So often I think this happens because we start in the New Testament and then read things back into the Old Testament. And that's a hermeneutical um, um, uh, process that many people are committed to, New Testament priority, a New, a New Testament hermeneutic where they would say the New Testament reinterprets the Old. And, and we would argue that while there's progressive revelation, uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't say the New Testament reinterprets the old we'd say it shines light on things that maybe we didn't see before but it's not changing or canceling or redefining anything it's expanding upon that and adding more light um, another consequence of that you can undermine the faithfulness of god i think you can also just read the story wrong um, but even practically our doctrine of the church there's a reason why we baptize those who um, are professing faith in christ and not babies and there's a, a reason Um, if you see the church in Israel as having a lot of continuity, being more alike than different, you will look at the Old uh, Testament community of faith and see that many of those people were not true believers, but they were Israel. They were part of the covenant community and they received the promises. Um, But there's a reason Moses had to preach to them and tell them, circumcise your hearts. He knew there was an internal problem, even if they'd been circumcised on the outside and they belonged, so to speak, to the covenant community on the outside. So, um, in Jeremiah chapter um, uh, 31, in the promise of the new covenant, God says, I'm going to make a covenant not like the one I made with your fathers. Um, it's going to be different. And some of those differences are the law's written on our hearts, we're given the Holy Spirit, um, our sins are forgiven. And then it has this really interesting phrase that says, and in that day, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. No longer will each one say to his neighbor, know the Lord. So there, there won't be a need to To preach that message of circumcise your hearts, you need to know God to people who have received this new covenant. It means they're all redeemed. So we see that that's one of the differences between the church, the true church, and Israel, is that in the church, those who belong to the church are born again. So that's why we baptize people. We mark them off with this sign of belonging, not when they're physically born, but when they're spiritually reborn. So baptism is one of those things. That's the reason why some would baptize babies, is they see continuity with the old covenant, and they say those who are born into the covenant community are given this sign. And so those who are born into our covenant community, we should give this sign of belonging. And um, we would disagree and say, well, th- those, they may be here and kind of getting secondhand smoke, you know, kind of enjoying the grace of being here, even if they're not born again, but they don't really belong until they're Till they're born again. So baptism is one of those very clear expressions of how this theology of the church in Israel um, is kind of fleshed out. Um, and there's others we could, we could talk about, but those are several. Very good question.
2: Okay, so the first part of the question was just to kind of hear um, perhaps our perspective or explanation of more the Roman Catholic view of of the Eucharist and um, the re-sacrificing of Christ in that. Um, And then what would the responsibility of a born-again believer, a Protestant, be if we happen to be in a service where the Eucharist was taking place? Could we partake in that? Um, so the, the, the re-sacrificing of Christ, I think, is really grounded in the, the Catholic view, um, their kind of hermeneutical framework of, of a works-based salvation, um, where the, the sacrament of, of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper, is seen as having a, um, a propitiatory aspect to it the the actual action itself, so the the idea of the sacrament as being uh, something that you can do, something you can act out um, by taking the bread and the cup and eating and drinking of the lord's actual body and blood as they would as they would put it um, is a holy action that has the power to take away sin um, and so I think that is is why the Eucharist and the Catholic Church retains that aspect of the body and blood of Christ being actually sacrificed again for you is is because it's being seen as a as a propitiation that's happening now as the congregant is is taking play taking part in this in this sacrament, so it really goes back to that false idea of um, of a sacrament an action that a person can do apart from their faith to take away sin um, and it empowers the it empowers the church it empowers the the priest who is um, blessing those uh, elements and um, supposedly turning them into the body and blood of Christ and re-sacrificing Christ on behalf of the participants so that by by taking part in that and and doing something they can be saved um, so I would say that just due to the the, the false heretical nature of that perspective that um, a born-again believer who, who understands that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was a once and for all propitiation that can only be received through faith. Um, there's so much disparity there between those viewpoints, and you don't want to, to give an offense by um, giving the impression that you would affirm the Catholic view of what is actually taking place. I personally could not in good conscience participate in, in the Eucharist in a Catholic setting.
0: Yeah, I do think it's ultimately a matter of conscience, but I agree with Carrie. I could not participate, and I've not participated when I've been in those uh, situations, um, whether it's a, a wedding where they have the Mass or something like that. Um, um Not only do I not want to affirm something that's heretical, even if I were to, in my own heart, you know, tell myself, well, this is what this really means, and I can do this as a believer, in participating in that ceremony, I personally feel that it dishonors Christ by redefining his work and minimizing the sufficiency of his work, and it places the emphasis on our works in order to secure forgiveness. So I, I personally cannot affirm or participate that in any way. Um, in good conscience. And I counsel other people not to. But at the end of the day, it is a matter of conscience. It's just one I feel very strongly about. (laughs) Um, But Hebrews chapter 9, to echo what Carrie said about a once-for-all sacrifice, says that Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the nature of Christ's sacrifice is once and for all. Um, and it's received through faith. We received the sufficiency of his work through faith. So, yes, Diane. Yes. Yeah, so the question is, um, if you're not really part of the church until you're born again, what do we make of children? What about the age of accountability, as it's often called? Um, just real briefly, Scripture never m- makes reference to the age of accountability. Um, so it makes sense to us that there would be, and this opens up another can of worms, about you know, what's the spiritual status of children who perhaps even die. Um, And I think we might have talked about this a few months ago in another another Q&A, but um, scripture doesn't draw a hard line on an age of accountability, but we do know that God is a righteous judge and he judges righteously. Whatever he does is right uh, because he's the one doing it. So um, Romans chapter one talks about God's wrath being poured out against those who suppress the knowledge of the truth. Um, and that he's righteous in in judging them for that. Because what can be known about God is apparent to them. Uh, Romans 1 says they see it in creation. Romans 2 says it's written on their hearts. So those who suppress that are accountable to God. So is a one-year-old able to suppress the knowledge of the truth? Is a five-year-old able to suppress the knowledge of the truth? Is a ten-year-old able to suppress the knowledge of the truth? Um, Some are at, at younger ages, and maybe some aren't. I think it could be different. I don't know if there's a standard To that, I just know that God is a righteous judge um, and it's something that we have to exercise wisdom in in terms of how we treat children and and what they're able to know and understand. And I think our default posture towards children is to understand that they're born sinners and they need Christ, but also not to treat them as hard-hearted rebels who have run far from God. We're treating them as those who need to be brought into the light and they need to understand. So we seek to teach them and train them, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we're hopeful that as they're exposed to the word, that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. So we're going to expose them to the truth and trust that God will save many. That's our prayer. So um, that's one of the reasons we don't allow children or we strongly encourage parents not to allow their children to come and take communion if they don't yet understand the gospel and if they've not yet made their own profession of faith. Uh, we want, and I know for some of my children, that's led to their conversion. Is actually watching us take communion, hearing it explained, and saying, "Why do I not get to take that?" And teaching them that it's not snack time for the adults. This is something that has spiritual significance, and that's for at least in my home, brought about some really great conversations. Just as a dad, to get to explain the gospel to to my kids. So, it's a good question, Meredith. Yes. So, why do we not have female deacons? What about deaconesses? Um, so, a little context: the word deacon means servant, and in the New Testament, we do see women referred to as servants. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they held the office of deacon. I think oftentimes people will point to these passage and show that there's women listed in the New Testament with the the female form of the word, you know, deacon. Um, and we would affirm that yes, and there's many faithful women who serve so faithfully here in our church but when we look at that office um, there's a few reasons why I would lean towards only having uh, men as deacons and it's not because women can't serve can't faithfully serve and don't do a number of wonderful things in the church but I think we see a precedent in the book of Acts we see that in Acts chapter 6 the church was instructed to select faithful men and they selected all men including Stephen who's the first martyr Uh, so we have that as an example. Um, and then also in, um, in, in the, the pastoral epistles, when we see the qualifications given for deacons, it refers to them as being husbands of one wife, and it talks about their wives um, having good character as well. So there's no mention to—it seems to indicate that it's men who fill that role. So we don't see a strong reason biblically to have them. It seems that we're, we'd be on thinner ice to to have women serve as deacons. So we want to open up as many opportunities as possible for women to serve in our church but our practice has been for that office to be fulfilled by men because of what we see in act 6 with that precedent and because of the qualifications it describes men uh, in those qualifications there is a hermeneutical argument to make room for their wives meaning their women referring to the church's women and that being qualifications for for female deacons, but I think that's a stretch, and it's forcing the issue. I just think the most plain, straightforward interpretation of the text is that men would serve in that capacity in terms of that office. So very good question. So how would your, are you talking about your understanding? Like, how? so how should you guys understand the authority structure in the church, and how does that shape your involvement? Um, I think in a number of ways. Anything you guys would would speak to that? I can throw a few things out, but I don't want to monologue the whole time, so feel free to chip in. Since I, We've only got one mic, so you've got to take it from me sometimes. Um, I think if your view of the church is that pastors do the work of the ministry, and that the church members are supposed to attend and then maybe give, but that's it. Then you have a very small understanding of, of the congregation's role. So I think um, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about how pastors, teachers, evangelists have been given, um, and apostles been given to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So I think a right understanding of, of the authority structure of the church doesn't place all of the responsibility on leadership to, to do everything. A right understanding of that sees there's, there's a, a rather narrow definition of what pastors, shepherds, are supposed to do. Um, there's a definition of what deacons are supposed to do, and there's a lot that the church members are supposed to do. So we see members as being very active in that. Um, we've had a lot of conversations about about this over the last few years, because several of you have come from a very different type of uh, back, church background in terms of the structure of the church. So people have asked, well, who, who holds you accountable then? Is there a denominational oversight? Is there... Um, some external like board of elders or something. We've said, no, it's it's the church. The, the body is actually supposed to be involved in, in accountability um, for leaders and for one another and for doctrine and all of these things. So I think our understanding of church government promotes the most active and involved type of church involvement for individual members. Um, but I also think it pl- places a lot of responsibility on leaders because. There aren't things we can just sort of punt and say, well, this is what the denomination told us we're doing, or this is what our, our session said, we're supposed to handle this this way. There's more responsibility on leaders to say it's, it's our responsibility and our decision to decide, for example, what are we going to do on Sunday when there's COVID-19 going around and maybe there's certain restrictions on gathering. You know, we're not being told by others what we have to do in terms of church structure. That's our decision to make, and there's a lot of responsibility before God to get it right. So, I think it keeps us from being passive as leaders, and it also keeps you as members from being passive. So,
1: I think, application wise, too, one of the sections we talked about in pneumatology, studying the Holy Spirit, was spiritual gifts. And when you look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you know, there's a lot, Paul's explaining how spiritual gifts are supposed to work in the church body and how the body is um, a picture of. The Church, and how we 're not to say like the eyes are better than the ears or to forsake the hands or anything like that, but to recognize that everybody has been given spiritual gifts, and that that 's really uh, a goal when, when you 're thinking about leadership, leading a church is what are the gifts that God has given this church. And how is that going to look here today? How is that going to look in five years? And thinking through, we want to get people involved using their gifts because that's what glorifies God. Um, and so thinking about it not so much as how do we get stuff done, but how do we glorify God through the people that he's given us here today today? Um, and what he's aiming to accomplish here in Lawrence. So I think when you think about practical application, it's good to reflect on, like, what has God given me? Like, what, what does he delight my heart in when I'm serving him? Like, what are ways that I maybe need to um, speak up and get involved. You know we don't have like a chart of like oh we've got all ninety some members and we've got everybody's spiritual gift like checked off. And sometimes you're serving in ways that stretch you that aren't necessarily your spiritual gift, but you're sacrificing and you're seeking to um, love the Lord through service to one another. And I think just recognizing that those are really helpful reflective chapters to see that in the center of twelve through fourteen in First Corinthians is the chapter on love. Um, And that, that, the context of that is actually placed in the church, not so much a marriage ceremony, Um, but the context is that everything I do um, when I serve the body of Christ is to be done with love and recognizing that that's something that needs to be evident in the way that our church loves and serves one another um, when we're, when we're seeking
2: to um, glorify, glorify Christ. I
0: have a question for you. If you have a comment. Okay.
2: Um, I was, I was just going to say that I think that um, our Particular interpretation of the pastor as elder, overseer, and shepherd, um, and f- and filling all of those uh, kind of descriptors and roles that you see in the New Testament um, should inform how we how we pray for our pastors and how we respond to them and um, and submit to their God given authority within the church. In another church where you might have um, a pastor who's the CEO and a board of elders. And then a pastor who is a preaching pastor, um, I think it does to a certain extent undermine the um, the kind of the soberness of of the role that Christ has given our under shepherds to have in the church and um, so where we understand that he has given he has given us our pastors as overseers as elders as um, those who are to shepherd the church and to teach the church, um, I think it should should kind of help us know how to value that blessing that Christ has given to the church, and how to pray for, and how to um, even in the proper context submit to that authority when necessary. So I think just practically speaking to us as congregants, and and how do we respond within this this authority structure that the church has, um, is to, is to value and pray for our pastors.
0: That's good. Um, go ahead, Craig. Yes. So, Carrie, how often should we celebrate communion? And then a second aspect to that question, what do you think about celebrating communion privately, like alone? I didn't tell him I was going to (laughs) ask you. Wow.
2: Thank you, J.D. (laughs) Um, So, in in the study that I I had time to do on, on this subject and actually... You know, throughout my Christian life, I've never um, been pointed to a specific prescription for frequency on the Lord's Supper, but Jesus did say, as often as you drink this cup. Um, so I think that the, the implication is that it is to be often, and how we describe often is, is always going to be subjective, but I think that is why we want to make sure as, as a church to um, celebrate the Lord's Supper at least once a month. Um, And uh, sometimes, you know, more often. Um, But to the question of um, taking communion as an individual. Um, So... (laughs) There's, there, there's a lot that goes into that, and I'm probably not doctrinally astute enough to speak to that in, a, in an educated way, but I know that there is a, there's a strong emphasis in the Scriptures on the um, corporate aspect of the Lord's Supper. Um, he instituted it among his disciples. He instituted it in a group that, that took part in it together. Um, and uh, there's even, let me see if I can find it here in my notes, there's a verse that speaks to this well if you'll bear with me.
0: Some and part of the reason I ask that is, is um, I've been in situations where people have wanted to celebrate communion at a wedding, um, which is a mixed group, not necessarily the church. Um, and in situations where even the, the married couple was going to take communion, but nobody else in the room would be taking communion. And I've also been asked if we would bring communion to someone who was maybe in the hospital or who was at home or something like that. Um, and then during the whole shutdown, when we were live streaming for three months, I don't know if any of you picked up on this, but we didn't celebrate communion at all during that time when we were staying home and live streaming. Um, so I, I do have some thoughts about that, but I was curious to get your thoughts.
2: Okay, I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to pass it off to you so I can hear your perspective. Um, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17 says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread um so there's there's certainly a an illustration that has been built into this ordinance of the Lord's Supper that points to the unity of the body and i think that that's largely lost um if if someone is taking the Lord's Supper outside of the
0: context of the the church body i agree um, and I do think that maybe some of the impulse to take communion individually um, or for people to take it in the hospital is is sort of, I think, in, influenced by that Roman Catholic view that there's something that I'm getting out of this that I can't get if I don't take communion. And because we believe that the the value and the impact spiritually of communion is that it fixes our focus and our faith on Christ and reminds us of what we have in Christ, um, Communion isn't the only way to remember Jesus, and it's not the only way to focus on his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. It's not the only way to reaffirm and, you know, our, our, con, our personal confession of faith in Christ and our repentance of sin. Um, so I think if you have more of the superstitious, you know, sacramental view that this is a means of grace, that if I don't take communion, I don't get some of Jesus that I, I need. Um, that might motivate you to want to take it in isolation. But again, the New Testament um, teaches us that we have all of Christ through faith. We don't get more of Christ through communion that we can't get directly through faith in him. Um, And because it is corporate, we don't want to... I wouldn't want to celebrate communion in a way that keeps other believers, in an exclusive sense, that keeps other believers from sharing in that. And the corporate... um, picture that communion is, is lost when we do it just with our family at home or or individually. So while I wouldn't say it's sin to do that, we don't encourage that. And you might have wondered why we never did communion during those live streaming months when you'd watch him lead music in his living room, and then I'd preach from my living room. Well, that that's why. It's because we felt like this was something that's to be done together. And as soon as we could get together again, we wanted to do communion, and it was really sweet to do so. So Well, we're out of time. If you have more questions about that, we're always available offline. Um, But we'll go ahead and be dismissed. We'll see you back here in about 17 minutes for worship. Thanks. Thank you, guys.